Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. This is a recording of a Shabbat teaching by Rabbi Adam Kligfeld, by Rabbi Cantor Hilary Chorney, and Rabbi Rebecca Schatz. As I mentioned in my Shabbat teaching this past Shabbat afternoon, there's always a little bit of rabbinic trepidation when the book of Shemot ends and we're like, oh no, it's Vayikra again. Uh, and you're not supposed to say that because every, every verse has divine sanctity uh, embedded within it. But sometimes it's harder to extract uh, modern meaning from th- this section of the Torah. And one of the things that I ask myself when I come across, upon Vayikra every year is, in the most broadest sense possible, right, without focusing on the details, what's it about? Why does this book of the Torah exist? Aside from communicating the particulars of the ancient uh, sacrificial ritual, which is clearly one of its raison d'etres, why is it there? And what was a Jew supposed to be pulling out of it, like of the matrix beyond the specifics of the details? As many of you know, the prayer world that we are, have inherited, that we are doing right now, extends from the sacrificial system, right? So when the temple was destroyed, not once but twice, and the rabbis, in a tremendous intellectual and spiritual revolution, essentially grafted onto the spoken word, so much of what was originally attributed to the sacrificial act, and we got prayer in the absence of a centralized worship place in the temple— And therefore, prayer became our language of worship to God, whereas beforehand, the language of our worship for God were these sacrifices that we're about to read. Now, let's focus on something that we know about uh, prayer and see if we can work backwards to sacrifices. One of the things that we know about prayer in the modern and even in the pre-modern Jewish world is that there is a tension. There's a tension in prayer. There are many tensions in prayer, right? There's a tension in prayer between, you know, the fixed and the spontaneous. There's a tension in prayer between the individual and the, uh, and the, and the public. There's also a tension, I would say, between precision, right? The expectation that the Jew and certainly the Jew leading get everything right, right? Uh, and know and have fluency. And that these are not suggested words. These are required words, that's one part of the tension. On the other part of the tension is that is the notion represented by that wonderful Hasidic, Hasidic story about the boy who only knows the alphabet and goes out into the, into the uh, woods, and there are many versions of the story, and the local Hasidim are very upset that he doesn't know how to daven, and the Rebbe says he knows the letters, he'll say the letters, God will weave them all together. And what matters is the prayer in your heart. That's a tension. Both matter in the Jewish prayer experience. Another way of articulating the tension is the tension between aesthetics and ethics. Aesthetics, how the prayer experience feels. We want it to be uplifted. We want it to be musically sound, right? We, we want it to have the, 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 the harmonies to impact. And we want the person who's coming to services expecting the Torah reading and the Haftarah and the Brachot to be intoned properly from the Bima should get that. That's the aesthetics. That matters. And the ethics. The ethics suggesting what? Is someone who doesn't have the same um, appreciation or even ability to produce music in the right tone somehow less of a valued prayer worshiper? That doesn't seem very ethical, right? And if someone who is you know, working really hard in order to produce 
Torah reading or haftarah or even public prayer with the right precision, but because of any number of things, didn't have the same education, didn't have the same you know, ability to produce those sounds, uh, doesn't, can't do it on the uh, spiritual aesthetic level. Does that mean that that person doesn't have an opportunity to lead the community in prayer? These are tensions. I'm not suggesting which way the seesaw balances. I'm suggesting that, that both are present in our modern and pre-modern prayer experience. And with that in mind, I want to show you something about that that is present in the sacrificial system as well. And it may be that one of the things that we're looking at right now informed the inherited tensions in prayer. Open up your chumashim. If you have the Eitz Chaim chumash, it's on page 595. If you just have a chumash, it's Leviticus Vayikra, chapter 4, verse 2. It's from the fifth aliyah of the Parsha. And what do we got here? By Daber Adonai Moshe Lemor, God said to Moshe, saying, Daber al-Bene Israel, speak to the children of Israel, Lemor, saying, Nefesh, a person, Ki techata, who sins, Bishkaga, by accident, and by accident always means one of two things in Jewish law. Either you didn't know you were doing the prohibited act, or you didn't know the act was prohibited. Right? Those are two different ways that one can do something by accident. Right? Like you, you knew that this particular food was chametz, but you ate it by accident, or you ate it intentionally, you just didn't know it was chametz. If a Pesach example. What's going on in the verse? Mikol mitzvot Adonai, from all of God's mitzvot, asher lo te'asena, interesting parenthetical phrase, which ought not be done. The whole concept is that if you've done something that you shouldn't have done, it should, then it ought not have been done, so it's somewhat redundant. Ve'asa, and now yet another potentially redundant three-word phrase, and did, me'achat mehena. It's translated in the Eitz Chaim Chumash as... Um, uh, and does one of them. Me achat mehena. Achat means one. Meh means from. And hena, these. From one, from these. It doesn't translate perfectly into English. What you can notice in the Hebrew is that there are two froms, two mems, two limitings that are taking place in this phrase, which in and of itself is extraneous. right? Because we already have named the fact that we're talking about someone who committed an uh, unintentional sin. The Netziv, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, who was um, a wonderful and important Rosh Hashiva and um, religious thinker and writer in the late 19th, early 20th century, in his commentary on the Torah called the Ha'amek Davar, says, what's going on here? He says, some mitzvot have many, many details attached to them, right? And so you go, you go to the level of mitzvah and then the halachot on those, on that mitzvah, and then like sub-halachot. So so resting on Shabbat is a mitzvah. One of the categories of resting on Shabbat is not cooking. And then there are manifold micro things that you can't do in the name of observing the halacha of not cooking of the mitzvah of Shabbat, right? I mentioned sometimes you know, how you make tea on Shabbat is a micro subcategory of observing the prohibition of not cooking on Shabbat, which of its, is of itself in the larger category of resting on Shabbat. And then it says there are also certain uh, mitzvot, where there's just kind of one thing you're not supposed to do, right? He mentions, interestingly, in this commentary, um, you know, the sexual prohibitions in later on the book of Ayikra. The thing you're not supposed to do is have relations with that person. That, that, that's it. There, there aren't that many subcategories of that. And he says what's going on in the verse is the me'achat me'hena is equalizing those two categories. Whether you do 
one of those things where the one is the thing itself, or you do even one of the sub-sub things where it's not that you're, when you, when you make tea improperly, as it were, it's not that you're like violating all the Sabbath. You're, you haven't stopped resting on Shabbat, but you have violated one of the halachic particulars in a category which is itself is a subcategory of the notion of resting on Shabbat. And the Natsiv says this verse smushes them together. Whether you do of one of those things, which is the thing, or you do of one of those things, which is a sub-thing of a sub-thing, suggesting that the sacrificial system was there to represent your transgressing God's expectations, whether you, you transgress all of it in one form or just a minor piece of it. And it's interesting that in that verse that, that really raises the stakes of your ritual sins, a minor thing is considered a violation of Shabbat, a tremendous stringency there, is also the verse that talks about the fact that if you do something bishkagah by accident, you have recourse. You're not tarred and feathered. You're not kicked out of the community. Here's a sacrifice. You've broken something in the system. The fabric is torn. Repair it by offering the sacrifice and you're back in. So if you combine those two things together, talking about that tension, there are expectations in the sacrifices, in the observance of Judaism and in prayer of precision and accuracy and paying attention to details. And even one aspect of one part of every mitzvah is a major violation and intention matters. And if you weren't trying to offend God, or if I bring it into the relational, you weren't trying to offend another person, then our reaction to that is very, very different. Something which I think our society sometimes forgets. We have forgotten a little bit about how to assess the intention of a person's act because we're so quick to pounce on the word or the deed which may offend certain part of our sensitivities. So I love the Nitziv's read because he is highlighting that the individual moments and details matter. Of course they do in our relationship with God. Of course they do in our relationship with each other. If it's all just kind of mealy-mouthed, banal commitment, then there's no structure, no system, nothing connecting us to one another. So it matters. And there's forgiveness. And there's space to build back trust. And there's an understanding that we're not perfect. And that if we err, whether we err in one of those details that matters because it's the entire category, or one of those details that's a subcategory of a subcategory, there is a pathway back. So I want to suggest to you that that's one of the things that Vayikra is about. And as we read now through these somewhat inscrutable verses, think of it as a system, an ancient and venerable and wise system to raise the level of our behavior that we're focusing on details and recognizing that our intention matters. And when we make a mistake by mistake, God will take us back and we should take each other back as well. That is an ageless piece of wisdom. Rabbi Kligfeld um, <laughs> did a wonderful job of teaching the verse already that I'm going to teach on, so it saved me some time, which is great. Uh, so 
I'm going to teach on the same verse he taught on. You can open up the Chumash again if it's helpful to you. It's chapter 4 of Vayikra, verse 2. Daber el b'nei Yisrael lemor nefesh. Ki techeta bishgaga. The soul, the person who, who sinned in error. Mikol mitzvot Adonai. From all of the commandments of God. I'm going to stop there at that phrase and just teach on that phrase. The phrase is funny, it's tricky, and it triggers commentary because it seems to be missing perhaps a pronoun, a subject of that particular uh, clause. Mikol mitzvot Adonai. Achat mikol mitzvot Adonai. We get two me'achats in the latter phrase, right? Ve'asa me'achat me'ehena. But in that phrase, what mikol? There's a collection of Musar teachings, the Shnei Luchot Habrit, and they bring two teachings that match one another, one from Midrash Tanhuma, a much older teaching, and one from Yalkut Shimoni. Again, they match, and they teach the same thing on this verse. What they say is that this verse teaches us that the transgression of any prohibition, even in error, is the transgression of all prohibitions, all lotases. There are two types of mitzvot in the Torah, the ones that you need to do and the ones that you need not do. Now, it teaches us this based on this mikol, right? Why would it use mikol, not it transgressed? One, there's so much language the Torah could have used, but the Torah used mikol, mitzvot Adonai, and from that language we learn that if they transgressed mikol, it's as if they transgressed kol, and they use a proof verse from Bamidbar. Um, the proof verse is, if you want to look it up, and I'll post this later uh, on the podcast as well, um, it's from Bamidbar, and it's uh, 15th chapter, 22nd verse, they use this proof verse, and they say it's as if you've transgressed all of the mitzvot and the Torah. And they say the system is set up thus. The reason why, it's, why it works this way is because we also have a teaching in our tradition that if you complete one mitzvah, it's as if you've completed all the mitzvot in the Torah. So here's what I'm here to teach you in my very, very brief vortlach today. I think that the Musar teaching here that the Shnei Luchot Habrit is trying to offer us is that that is a very vulnerable, fragile system to set up. Don't base your life on the idea that if you err once, that you've broken all of the Torah, that you've broken down in your observance. Don't base your life that you've broken a relationship if you mess up once. And don't think that if you've done one good thing that you can stop there. Don't think that one mitzvah gets you all of the way. It's an ongoing system of action to be fulfilled over and over again. One of the questions that I had and that it seems many of our rabbis had about chapter 4, verse 3, is why is it so important to the Torah that the high priest be the one who is uh, incurring guilt in front of all of us? Why not choose a random person? Why choose someone who has so much power, who's a leader to the people? 
And what I found so compelling in Sforno's commentary is that the high priest potentially is the least likely to commit a sin. However, the high priest is also affected by the people around him in this case. A leader is affected by the people around her and is affected by that which the people need, that which the people want. And sometimes that means that we get to create beautiful things and sometimes that means that we make mistakes because we are taking, hopefully, we are leading from within as opposed to from above. We are listening to the people around us. We're taking the, that which our community needs, that which our people are asking for, and we act. And the Talmud speaks of this in the way of a shalich zibor, in the way of a shatz, barampam. That if you make a mistake in your own prayer, you then have what they say, they call a bad omen in brachot. But if the shalich zibor, if the shatz, the person who is doing the praying on your behalf makes an error, not only that person, but all those who offered their prayer in response to or with the shalich zibor suffers the consequences. So I don't want you to hear this as a negative. I want you to hear this as a positive that those who you are in community with and those who you call your leaders, whether spiritually or out in the world, we are affected by that which our people need and want. And I hope that every Shabbat you feel that we are very aware of the community that we are blessed to be part of. And so sometimes we try things out that you're not going to potentially like, or sometimes we try things out that you really love. But we, as the people who are in this moment, lucky enough to lead a community, take risks. And as the Torah teaches us, sometimes that means that we also incur the guilt. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.